Thank you, Father, that that's what you delight to do, to lead us to recognize the preciousness of all that you have given us in Jesus. So God, we look forward to what you do for us through your word this morning. We ask that it would be your voice that we hear, that we would walk out of here with a greater vision of Jesus, with greater excitement about seeing you in our own lives, that we would determine to fix our eyes on Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Hey, Rufus, Rufus, you've got to tell me about this. What? How did this happen? Rufus loved for people to ask him this question. You see, this was a new person to the group. You know how it is when you have a a group that's meeting in a house. Maybe you don't know, but Rufus was a part of a house church, a small house church. And here came a newcomer and he wanted to know the story of what had brought Rufus to Rome. How did you get to Rome, Rufus? What, what was, what brought this about? I just don't understand how a man like you would end up in Rome. And besides, why is it that you are so obsessed with this thing they call the way? Well, Rufus began to tell him the story that he delighted to tell. You see, it all started a long time ago on the northern coast of Africa. My family and I, we were from Cyrene. Cyrene is where modern-day Libya is, for those of you that don't know. In fact, I'm going to put up here in just a second a, a map that will help you get oriented to think about this. But they lived in Cyrene, and somehow, all the way in Cyrene, they had come to know the truth of John 14:6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, Rufus went on to tell about his father, who his father was literally having the experience of Psalm 85, 84 and verse 5 that says, Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. Although Simon lived 1,000 miles away from Jerusalem, he had this determination that he wanted to make that journey. He wanted to finally make that journey to Jerusalem. But a thousand mile journey in the first century AD was no joke. It was a difficult endeavor for anyone to take. It would take a year's wages, about 364 denarii, just to travel by yourself, let alone if you brought any goods with you. The trip was a long trip. I'll put a little picture up here of a map. You can see Cyrene there is down here uh, on the northern tip of Africa. Jerusalem is all the way over here in Palestine. So this trip goes all the way past Egypt, and there's different ways that you could take. You could take roads, and you could also take ships, and it was probably a combination of the two going through Alexandria and eventually getting to Jerusalem. Well, This was a lifetime dream that Simon had had. I long to go to Jerusalem. I just want to make this pilgrimage someday. But at first, he wasn't a man of wealth and he wasn't a man of substance, I imagine. But as time went on, he was able to build enough funds so that he one day said to his sons, Look, finally, let's go to Jerusalem. I want to go to Jerusalem. I've been reading through the Old Testament prophecies. You see, uh, we learned from Ptolemy that in Cyrene there were quite a few Jews, and he likely was either a convert to Judaism, or maybe he had 
come from Jerusalem. We're not sure entirely, but he might have been from Libya. He might have been a darker complexion. We're not sure exactly what he looked like, but as he was there and he's contemplating, he's reading the scriptures, he's coming into contact with Jews, he's reading about this place in Jerusalem. He's reading about the temple and he's reading about the importance of going to the temple three times a year. And he says, what I want to do more than anything else is to take a lamb to that temple in Jerusalem to be able to go there and offer up a Passover lamb. As that dream began to come to fruition, he and his sons finally decided to make that long journey you can imagine as it would take at least 12 days, maybe three weeks, maybe more in order to make this long trip that he'd been dreaming about for years because his heart was set on pilgrimage. He was excited about being able to go and see this temple in Jerusalem. And finally there comes the day when he begins to crest that hill and he begins to look over and there is Jerusalem across the valley. He descends down into the valley and begins to go up into the city. And as he's coming into the city, the city is all a rush. People are preparing for Passover. There's travelers from all around are there in the city that day. But something else is going on in the city that day. Something else that Mark captures in Mark chapter 15 and verse 21. You see, that day was entirely different. Throughout the night, a man named Jesus had been beaten. He'd been falsely condemned. This innocent victim had been condemned by Pilate to death. And he was being drugged through the streets. He was, had been whipped. He barely could move at this point. He was at the point of exhaustion. And as the crowd is coming along, right at that moment, Simon is walking into the city from his long trip. He's coming in from the country. And it says this in Mark 15, verse 21. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian. It's like he's a foreigner, a stranger, out of place in this. The Romans are looking around. They don't know who else could carry the cross for Jesus. The Jews wouldn't do it because Passover is coming. And so they think, well, we can't force a Jew to do it. They would, they would be upset because they wouldn't be able to keep the Passover. Here is Simon. He's coming into the city after this long journey. His dream is to celebrate the Passover. And he looks and he sees this man who's been brutally beaten. And as he looks, he looks maybe with a bit of compassion. The Desire of Ages picks it up in page 742. It says, at this time, a stranger, Simon a Cyrenian, coming in from the country, meets the throng. He hears the taunts and ribaldry of the crowd. He hears the words contemptuously repeated, make way for the king of the Jews. He stops in astonishment at the scene. And as he expresses his compassion, they seize him and place the cross upon his shoulders. Can you imagine how inconvenient this was for Simon? Simon, who was looking forward to being able to go to the temple, to being able to celebrate the Passover, was now going to be unclean by his contact with the cross, by his contact with one who's condemned to die. Here he is on this moment that he's been looking for maybe throughout his lifetime. Maybe this was the first time that he was able to make that journey finally to Jerusalem. And as he gets there, of all things, he's forced by a Roman soldier to carry the cross. As he puts that cross onto his shoulder, Mark tells us a few interesting things about him. Did you notice it? He says that he's a Cyrenian, but what else does it tell us about him? He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. 
There's something special about this that we'll see as we go on further in this story. But they compel him. He begins to carry the cross. And as he carries the cross, following after Jesus, he is intent on going to the temple, sacrificing the lamb. He's intent on providing propitiation for his sins. He's intent on coming there to worship in the way that he thinks will gain him favor with God. But God has met him in that moment with something special and something precious that he will never forget. One of the most precious scenes around the cross is this moment when Simon gets to follow Jesus carrying that cross. Can you imagine as maybe it was just the cross beam, we don't know, or maybe it was the entire cross that he was carrying, but as he hoists that onto his shoulder, can you imagine as maybe some of that fresh blood from Jesus begins to drip down his own clothes? As he looks, he sees Jesus just barely able to walk along and he wonders, what kind of man is this? Who is this? And, and, what has brought him to this place? He, he doesn't look like a hardened criminal. He doesn't look like somebody who should be condemned to die. Who is this Jesus? And what is happening? Desire of Ages tells us that he may have been familiar with the story of Jesus, but he hadn't yet come to recognize the value of Jesus for himself. As he carries that cross up, you can imagine that he stayed there when Jesus... I mean, having gone up there and you would want to see what takes place and he begins to see Jesus crucified. He sees all the things on the cross. And as he beholds Jesus being lifted up, everything changes for Simon. He begins to recognize something special about this guy as he looks at those who have just nailed him to the cross, those who have spit on him, those who have whipped him and abused him. He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. As he looks to the thief on the cross and says, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. You're going to inherit, to be a part of my kingdom. And as he looks at this man, who a Roman centurion says, surely this man was the son of God. Simon began to wonder, is there something different about Jesus? Maybe he went on from there and went to the temple went to offer that land that he'd been dreaming about offering. And as he went to the temple, can you imagine the scene as they're there trying to worship in the temple, but something has happened. As we read in Matthew 27, verse 51, when Jesus died, it says, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. That separation that had been there to keep people away from the presence of God, that had been there throughout the history of the temple, that had, had made this separation between the common people and God, that veil that was only penetrated once a year on the Day of Atonement suddenly was ripped in two. And imagine as he looks there into the temple, what does he see in there? The most holy place? The Ark of the Covenant actually isn't there in there. He realizes, we believe it was taken away maybe in the days of Jeremiah. At this point, it was empty. And as he looks in there, gazes into just an empty, holy place, he recognizes that there is something missing here. That this isn't what he came for. That God had something else in mind. That God had brought him here for an entirely different purpose. That God had led him to the place where he came to realize that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That it's not through the sacrifices of blood of bulls and goats. It's not through penances. It's through the lamb, 
through the blood of Jesus Christ that we are saved. You know, Jesus said something significant there when he said, I am the way. I was recently privileged to be in uh, Israel this past summer, and I got to go to a little town near Nazareth, a little uh, city there, that had this road there. Now, the word that he uses for the way is basically road, haras. So here you have a Roman road. This was extremely significant in Palestine at this point in time. The Roman roads were how the Romans were so powerful. In fact, this author, uh, this historicist, Robert Graves, says this about Roman roads. He says, The Roman road is the greatest monument ever raised to human liberty by a noble and generous people. It runs across mountain, marsh, and river. It is built broad and straight and firm. It joins city with city and nation with nation. It is tens of thousands of miles long and always thronged with grateful travelers. The Roman roads were a huge part of what made the Roman Empire so powerful. It wasn't just their military might. Their military was so powerful because of the connection that was there through the roads that connected them. It was the Roman roads that were built straight, that were built with uh, huge stones. They were built to be very strong. They lasted for a long time. In fact, there's an interesting story where the Romans go into Britain. And in Britain, they they capture Britain and there's no roads there. And so they build their roads on the the wagon tracks that they have there. And after they build their roads, they're there in Britain for a while. Once they leave Britain, the Britons want nothing to do with their roads anymore. And so they, they don't really know how to maintain them. And they just leave the roads alone. And for hundreds of years, these roads sit there. But they've still discovered many of these roads. And they were there for, for years afterwards. They were solid roads that you could choose to use or not to use. But they made it easy to travel. They made it easy to be connected city with city, nation with nation. You can even see here in this picture the, the chariot tracks from Roman chariots. That's what they believe these grooves are, are, are worn into the, the stones by, that the actual chariots would go over that. The Roman roads were important, and Jesus chooses to describe to his disciples in a moment before going to the cross, in the moment before they don't, they're going to be, be driven away from Jesus, they're going to, to deny him that night. He wants them to know something. He wants them to know that I am the way. I am the road. I am how you get from here to the Father. There's no other way to God except for through me. I am the only way. There is no other way that you can get to God except for through Jesus. Hebrews 10, 19 to 20 may have come into Simon's mind as he's there looking at that that veil that was ripped in two. Hebrews 10, 19 and 20 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. There's something far better than Roman roads, although they were amazing. And that is a living way, a living road, which was consecrated by Jesus. And friends, For you and I this morning, that means everything. Jesus is absolutely everything for us. He's not just how we start our journey. He's not just how we end our journey. But He is the Alpha and the Omega. 
He's the one that begins our faith. He's the one that finishes our faith. Jesus is every step of our journey. And he is the only way to salvation. He's the only way to the Father. That's why Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the only way that you can find your way to God. Well, Faith and Works, page 24. I love how this describes the the value of all that Jesus gives to us. It says this, The Lord Jesus imparts, notice what it says, all the powers, all the grace, all the penitence, all the inclination. You getting this? I mean, what's missing here so far? But there's still more. All the pardon of sins in presenting his righteousness for man to grasp by living faith, which is also the gift of God. What else can you possibly offer in your walk with God that Jesus doesn't provide for you? All of the inclination, all of the desires that you have, all of the, the pardon, all of the grace, all the powers, all of the penitence. Well, wait, hang on a second. Doesn't our relationship with Jesus start through repentance? Sometimes we think that, hey, if I can be sorry enough for my sins, then I can enter into a relationship with Jesus. Isn't repentance kind of that door that we enter into our relationship with Jesus? That's not what Peter said after seeing Jesus lifted up on the cross and receiving the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 31, he says, Him, talking about Jesus, God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior to give what? Repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Friends, this is incredibly good news. This morning you might think, man, I don't, I'm not really attracted to the things of God. Man, I, I'm not even sorry for the stuff that I did this past week. Even repentance is a gift from God. Even repentance can only come from God. And so what can we do but expose ourselves to more and more of the love of Jesus, to not harden ourselves against the love of Jesus as he continues to draw us. And if we don't resist, we will be drawn to his loving heart. Repentance is a gift. Forgiveness is a gift. Jesus is the way from A to Z, from Alpha to Omega, the entire journey of your life in getting to Jesus and getting to the Father is through Jesus. There is no other way of salvation. Simon began to realize that, I believe. And I believe that everything changed for Simon after that weekend of the Passover as he saw the cross, he saw Jesus crucified, he saw the temple veil was torn in two, and he realized that there was a new, a living way, a way that could get him to God that he'd been longing for. And in Acts chapter eleven nineteen, we find something fascinating. As the church begins to, to spread, Acts chapter 2 tells us that there were those from Cyrene who were there on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out. Maybe Simon was there on that day. But then Simon goes back and Rufus begins to tell this convert who comes to talk to him. Then Simon, my dad, went back to Cyrene and he founded a house church there. But that church, as it began to grow, as it began to expand, it didn't just stay there. Because here's the deal. When you come into contact with Jesus, and if you want to know, am I on the road? Am I on the way with Jesus? There's one way to know that, and that is, who has your heart? I love what it says in the book, Steps to Christ. Page 58, it says, who has the heart? With whom are our thoughts? Of whom do we love to converse? 
Who has our warmest affections, our best energies? If we are Christ, our thoughts are with Him, and our sweetest thoughts are of Him. All we have and are is consecrated to Him. We long to bear His image, breathe His Spirit, do His will, and please Him in all things. Who has the thoughts? Who has my heart? Who do I love to talk about? Am I overflowing about Jesus? And I believe that Simon was overflowing about Jesus because as he went back to Cyrene, I believe that something took place. A revival began to happen in Cyrene that changed Cyrene because we read here in uh, Acts chapter 11 verse 19. Now those who were Oh, sorry, we need verse, well, we'll start with verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. So you have Stephen being stoned in Acts chapter 7. And after that, the gospel begins to spread. The Jews begin to go out. But who are they preaching the gospel to? They're only sharing it with Jews. It's only good enough for them to share with those who are Jews. That's all that they're focused on. But then there's a group who does something different. A church who's overflowing and talking about Jesus. A church who's passionate about talking about Jesus with everybody. In verse 20 says this, Now some of them were men from where? Cyprus and Cyrene. Maybe this was Simon and his family. Simon and his family maybe had gone back and talked about Jesus and all that he was. And as that church began to get excited, they developed a heart to share Jesus with the world. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, that's the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. They're just sharing out of their hearts. They're overflowing about the preciousness. Hey, you've got to hear about my friend Jesus. Maybe Simon is there saying, you won't believe it. As I walked up the hill of Calvary holding the cross for Jesus, I saw in him a love that is beyond reason. I saw that somebody like him, the God of the universe, would come down and lay down his life willingly for you and me. That kind of love is worth giving my life back to. And I just want to invite you to love Jesus too. I don't know exactly what it's like, but it's pretty amazing to think about because, first of all, we have him here in Cyrene, down here. And then we have him making that trip to Jerusalem. And then where is he preaching in this story? Did you catch it? He's in the city of Antioch. So now he's all the way up here, or we have Christians at least, all the way from Cyrene, who are up in Antioch preaching to the Hellenists. They've just been set on fire. They're going around the world telling the world about Jesus. They're overflowing about Jesus because they come to see that Jesus is the only way and that he offers us everything that we need for salvation. They're there in Antioch preaching the gospel and they're preaching it to the Greeks. Desire of Ages, page 742, says this about the bearing of the cross for Simon. It says, the bearing of the cross to Calvary was a blessing to Simon. He was ever after grateful for this providence. It led him to take up upon himself the cross of Christ from choice and ever cheerfully to stand beneath its burden. Who takes their family all the way and moves them across the Mediterranean Sea all the way up into foreign territory just so that you can preach the gospel? Who, except for those who are set on fire by the love of Jesus, who've been so filled with the love of Jesus and 
Maybe this was the case with Simon. Maybe Simon had been so touched by bearing the cross of Jesus that he was willing to go to the ends of the earth to share about Jesus and his love. But its story doesn't end there if we piece together the parts of the puzzle. Romans chapter 16, Paul is concluding his, his letter to the Roman church. And in verse 13, he says this, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Now, this is the only other time that a Rufus is mentioned, and it's like we should know who Rufus is. Now, Mark, some commentators believe, was writing from Peter's experience, and Peter was connected with the church in Rome. And so some people believe that Mark was reading, was writing to the church in Rome. And as he's writing to the church in Rome, when he describes that what Simon of Cyrene did in carrying the cross, he's the only one who mentions, oh yeah, and Simon is the father of Rufus and Alexander. Do you get it? You're putting together the pieces here? He's writing to the Roman church, and he's saying, hey, by the way, he's also the dad of Rufus and Alexander. You know this guy. You know Rufus. And as Paul is writing to the Roman church in Romans 16, 13, he says, greet Rufus. He's my friend, the chosen in the Lord. How did they become such close friends? Well, it's fascinating. If you look in Acts chapter 13 and verse 1, it actually says that one of those people who first sent Paul out on a missionary journey who the Holy Spirit impressed while they were fasting and praying was Lucius of Cyrene. One, he was one of the leaders there in Antioch. He was fasting and praying and, and the Holy Spirit said, hey, send Barnabas and Paul out on their missionary journey. Paul had spent a lot of time there in Antioch, just like the Cyrenian Christians were there in Antioch. And maybe it was there that he met the family of Simon of Cyrene and he met Rufus and Alexander. And through that, Simon's wife became like a mother to the Apostle Paul. I don't know if that's the full story, but piecing together the pieces, this is a good possibility of what takes place. And it's fascinating because it's in Antioch. Do you know what first took place in Antioch? Up until Antioch, that's right, they were first, they were called Christians in Antioch. Before that, do you know what they were called? Do you know what? the Christians were called before they were called Christians? Anybody? A number of times you'll read it. Paul talks about that he got letters to go and persecute those of the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. They met in small groups focused on the way, and people said, oh, well, these people, let's call them the way. They're obsessed with the way. All they can think about is that road that Jesus said he was. Let's just call them the way. But in Antioch, they began to call them Christians because they were so obsessed with Jesus. They were overflowing with Jesus. They'd found a friend in Jesus. So that, if you piece the the puzzle together, Rufus may have traveled with his dad from Cyrene to Jerusalem, maybe back to Cyrene. Then he goes to, to Antioch, then eventually goes all the way up here to Rome going to the ends of the earth to share about Jesus and his love that had so touched his heart. And that experience of that one family may have been what impacted Paul in such a powerful way that he had such an experience with Jesus in his own life. 
Paul wasn't able to see Jesus like Simon was able to see Jesus. He wasn't able to carry the cross behind Jesus up Calvary. He wasn't able to walk in the footsteps of Jesus quite like Simon was able to do. But something fascinating happens in Galatians chapter 2. Here Peter is in Antioch. And Paul is also in Antioch. Paul's writing to the Galatians. And he, re- he tells them this story about when he's in Antioch. This is a fascinating story. I encourage you to read this whole chapter. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I, Paul, withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Now, this is a pretty fascinating moment because here Paul is, a fairly new convert, and he's standing up to Peter, the apostle. And he's standing up to him because he is to be blamed. And what is he to be blamed for? It goes on to say, before certain men came from James in Jerusalem... He would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. He began to go back into his old ways of Judaism. He began to do just like he had done on that night when he denied Jesus, because he was worried about how people thought of Peter. Self was beginning to get in the way. And friends, this is the only thing that can stop you that can stop the way from being the way for you and I. The way will be the way as long as we allow him to be the way. But if self gets in, if we begin to try to figure out our own way, if we begin to solve our own problems, if we begin to even to try to take care of all of our sins in our own strength, we're not on the road anymore. We're like the Britons. We're neglecting these beautiful roads and letting them to go to pot because we don't really value the way. And Peter began to have this take place in his own life. He began to neglect the way once again. And notice what Paul does. He goes on to say, And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. They're all not walking on the way anymore. They're all trying to earn a little bit on their own. They're all trying to, to merit their own salvation. But Paul goes on to tell him, in the preceding verses, and it's, it's a long part. We won't go through the whole thing, but we'll look at a couple of verses here. But he says this, I have been, well, I think we missed one verse there. No, we didn't. Okay, we'll go to verse 20. He's speaking to Peter, and he stands up to Peter, and for 20 or like 15 verses, he's basically laying it out to Peter. Here's the deal, Peter. You're forgetting what the gospel is all about. You're forgetting what the truth of the gospel is. And then he says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't know how Paul came to this beautiful revelation of who Jesus is. But if Rufus' mother was Simon's wife and Paul considered him like her like a mother, could it have been that it was through that family and their experience with the cross of Jesus Christ that it had become such a reality to Paul that he recognized that he too was called like Simon to take up his cross, to sacrifice his own life, and to follow in the footsteps of Jesus who is the way. And he was able to say, look, Peter, you're missing the point. 
It's all about Jesus. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Jesus paid it all. He took it all for me. Every bit of our sins, every bit of our obedience, all of it is found in Jesus. And because of that, I don't live anymore, Peter. It's no longer I who live in the flesh, but I live by faith in the Son of God. And why I have that faith is what we talked about throughout the All About Jesus seminar. I have that faith in the Son of God because I recognize that He loves me. That He gave Himself for me. Let that sink into your heart this morning. Jesus loves you. Not just the world. He didn't just die for everyone out there. He died for you. He loves you. You too have been crucified with Christ. And should you choose to accept it, the way will become absolutely everything to you. He will be the author and the finisher of our faith. He goes on to say, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. He goes on to say to the Galatians, he's, he's giving them this example of what take, took place in Antioch to plead with them to fix their eyes on the crucified Savior. And he says this in Galatians 3 verse 1. Oh foolish Galatians, you're being fools. You're, you're totally throwing away everything. What are you doing, Galatians? Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? Now you think about it. Galatia is a long ways away from Jerusalem. This is Paul writing to the Galatians. Did the Galatians see Jesus crucified? They did? I mean, it sounds like it, right? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. It's doubtful, though, that he's writing to this entire church and that they were all there on the day when Jesus was crucified and Paul was likely not even there. But instead, he's describing what has taken place through the witness, through the testimony of Paul, through the testimony of others who have come and preached Jesus and Jesus only, who have preached Jesus crucified, Jesus lifted up. In the book Acts of the Apostles, talking about the experience of the disciples in the early church, it says, Jesus only, in these words is contained the secret of the life and power that marked the history of the early church. Friends, Jesus is the only way. He is absolutely everything. He's the alpha and the omega of our experience. So let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's run the race with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Let's walk in the footsteps of Simon of Cyrene. Let's behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who was portrayed before our eyes is crucified, just like for the Galatians. We've got to fix our eyes on Jesus, to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's everything for us. Jesus is the one who gives us all the grace, all the penitence, all the inclination, all the pardons of sin in presenting his righteousness for man to grasp by living faith, which is also the gift of God. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one can come to the Father except through Him. I pray that 
Many of you were blessed by the All About Jesus seminars. If you weren't, though, and you weren't able to be a part of it, I want to encourage you to go to their website and to click on media and to go and watch that seminar. But not just to watch it. What were the the main three things that kept coming out again and again, night after night? What was represented by the three legs of the stool? The stool is there so that Pastor Lee encouraged us so we can watch the lamb. And the three legs were prayer, studying the Bible, and sharing about it. Overflowing, having a heart that's overflowing with the love of Jesus. Encourage you to continue in that experience. But not just to do it on your own. We have the awesome opportunity of doing that together with small groups. We can meet together and we can experience that where we can encourage each other. We can continue to encourage each other to walk in the way. If you'd like to be a part of that, as you leave today on the table out there, there's sheets where you can just say, hey, I'm interested in a small group. And we'll be coordinating that in the next week or so just to have opportunities where you can come together each week and watch the Lamb. Focus on Jesus. Because Jesus is everything. If we miss that, we miss everything. But if we get that, then we've got everything. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Father in heaven, we long to see Jesus more clearly. God, I pray for each of my friends here this week. That you'd wake them up each morning with a hunger for Jesus. And even if they don't have that hunger, that they would be determined to open their Bibles, to be exposed to you, to let their schedule be interrupted like Simon's schedule was interrupted. They would be determined to watch the Lamb. Oh Jesus, we just want to see you in all of your preciousness. We want to recognize in you a friend who will meet our every need according to your riches in Christ Jesus. Please, Father, fill us with the Holy Spirit. Open the eyes of our understanding so that we can see Jesus more clearly. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.